and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, August 13th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Happy to be here. And Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. It's great to be here. So we actually have lots of non-COVID health news this week. Uh, Let's start with Joe Biden's running mate pick, California Senator Kamala Harris. Since this is a health policy podcast, we're only going to discuss her record on health care, which I hasten to add has not really been a top issue for her, either in the Senate nor in her brief presidential campaign. Although she did run into some trouble on the presidential uh, campaign trail over her Medicare for all, but don't get rid of private insurance plan. Uh, I guess she was trying to, to fill that sort of small niche between the, the liberals and the very liberals in the Democratic Party. Um, is any of this going to come back to haunt her or does it really not matter once she becomes the, the number two on the presidential ticket? Oh, it'll come back, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden is very focused, one of the architects on the Affordable Care Act. That'll be their message, preserve and strengthen that. But I have no doubt folks will go back. And earlier, you know, she was an early proponent of Bernie Sanders. One of the original co-sponsors, actually, in the Senate. Exactly. Then she modified that to say, no, you know, my plan would allow private insurance and allow some competition and so on. A slower phase in of the Medicare for All program from, I think, four years with Senator Sanders. Hers was 10. So she'll try to walk away from that, I'm sure, but it will come up. But it won't be the dominant issue with her. It was clearly not her selling point as a presidential candidate. Her career has been in law enforcement and prosecution. In the Senate, she was on the Judiciary Committee. Women's Health and Abortion is obviously an issue she is associated with. She was also, I believe, on intelligence. So she's she's not a domestic policy person outside the sort of criminal justice, uh, those issues which are more dominant. Health is not going to help her in any way. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't asking if it was going to help. I was asking if it was going to hurt. It's a liability, but I don't think it'll be the main liability. I mean, it's not her strength. She didn't really seem to either have strong beliefs or deep knowledge uh, on health care. And it's going to hurt her, but the things she's being attacked for will be attacked for. It'll probably be a second tier issue. It'll probably be more of a flip flop. You don't you don't have any principles kind of issue that it is the substance of her non plan. I do think what she proposed, which was essentially Medicare for all, but not single payer, um, did approach this kind of in an interesting way in which people would have the option of essentially enrolling into the government's Medicare plan or enrolling in Medicare Advantage, which is administered by private plans. And I think this question going forward over um, whether we're going to be adding a public option to the mix of uh, health insurance is really interesting and, and prominent. And the questions over what exactly that public option option looks like. Will it look more like Medicare or will it actually look more like Medicare Advantage? In states that have tried this, we've seen that they've looked more like Medicare Advantage, where they're publicly financed, but then privately run. It was a more interesting plan than she was able to explain. I think. And I, I think Kimberly's right. I mean, if, if Biden is elected and the Democrats take the Senate back, I mean, they're going to ha- want to and sort of have to do something about health care. And then we really will get into to some of these details. Whereas Biden was, you know, as Max says, a really key advisor on the Affordable Care Act. I imagine that, you know, what she does as vice president will probably not take the lead on health care. 
that's that safe assumption. I think that's very safe assumption. But if I were the next attorney general, I'm not sure I'd want her looking over my shoulder, which I'm sure she has a lot of ideas of people she would like to prosecute. Uh, yes, I, I imagine that is certainly true. Um, all right. Well, meanwhile, uh, Congress is still fighting over what should be in that next COVID relief bill, even after the last one has basically fully expired at this point. Um, And in an attempt to fill that void, President Trump is issuing a raft of executive orders, or saying he will, and many of them are health-related. So let us start with the payroll tax holiday, which, as we have discussed here before, is not supported by either Democrats or Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill, in large part because the biggest economic problem right now is people who are not working and therefore not on payrolls, and so not paying payroll taxes. You know, traditionally, payroll payroll tax holiday has been because people who are working don't have enough money and they're not spending enough. And if you give them more money, they can juice the economy. But that is not the issue here. Now, there is some question about what taxes uh, Trump's executive memorandum would cover, but it seems to put on hold both the Social Security and the Medicare parts of the 7.65% payroll tax paid by workers and employers. And while the president does have authority to defer the collection of those taxes, uh, he has said that he wants to forgive them completely completely if he's reelected, which would, of course, blow a hole in the finances of both programs, resulting in cuts to programs he's repeatedly vowed that he won't make. Um, I have two questions. First, why is he so fixated on this? We can't answer that one, Julie. Yeah, well, that's true. But does he not understand that cutting off funding is the same as cutting the programs? Or does he think that the public won't understand that? Well, first of all, this isn't going to happen, right? Nobody on Capitol Hill likes this. Whether it happens in some kind of mishmashy temporary way is even in question whether it happens at all. So it's not going to become a permanent thing. It may become a short-term mess. We've talked to experts that think it is only Social Security, not Medicare, but it's, it's, it's not very clear. So um, I think what's interesting is politically it's interesting because Social Security and Medicare had not really figured in this campaign and voila, um, the minute Trump, you know, whether he talks about general funds or other ways of making up for it or whatever, I mean, the fact is he is cutting off the funding to Social Security. He may be cutting off the funding to Medicare. It may be temporary, but politically, the Democrats jumped on this immediately. Uh, Schumer and Pelosi put out a statement that very night about he was going after entitlements. Advocacy groups in the DNC have followed that. It is a secondary but visible attack on Trump right now. Um, you know, whether it stays relevant in the camp, you know, this is a very, you know, the seven second news cycle. But right now, this week, we've seen sort of traditional Democratic attacks about we will save Social Security and Medicare and Trump will eviscerate them. We have seen that politically in a way we hadn't really seen that in this campaign. It, it just seems to me that he's opening up a door that, I mean, this is sort of a self-inflicted wound. First of all, this is not really an effective way to get money to people. And second of all, it opens him up to these attacks. And whether it's just Social Security or whether it's both Social Security and Medicare. Um, and, you know, I heard the White House officials over the weekend insisting, oh, well, you know, this money would be made up in the general fund. Um, you can't do that without Congress. You, you can't just move money from the general fund into the Medicare and Social Security trust funds. I mean, they love to just say this stuff. And it's like, that's illegal. The general tax revenues may not be so uh, generous. We may not have a lot of extra tax revenues to fund these things with people not working, all the COVID funding. Um, again, you know, it's it just I think to your original question, Julie, number it's number two. He thinks that voters won't figure it out, that it is undercutting Medicare and Social Security funding. But that's exactly Joanne's right. There's just a wide avenue now for Dems to attack him on entitlements, which voters treasure. 
So I'm not quite getting this either. It does seem like there is a pretty wide chance that a lot of employers won't actually take this up. You know, if they were to do so, and let's say Congress, you know, does not end up abolishing the payroll tax for a few months, that means that tons of taxpayers would have to pay that money back when tax season comes. Actually, I think they have to pay it back at the end of the year. I mean, there was there was sort of after the yeah, election. Well, th- yeah, there, but there was speculation that, you know, sort of your last paycheck before Christmas would be zero because you would have, you know, basically paid back all this tax that you hadn't been paying over the fourth quarter. It's unusually elegant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so even sooner than I thought. <laughs> and if you but, move jobs, it's unclear which employer has to pay it back. Oh, this feels a lot like the unemployment proposal, which was so amazingly complicated that it felt like nobody would actually get any additional unemployment because states would have to completely reprogram all of their computers and now the additional money. I mean, it's it, it's these things tend to feel like things that were not thought all the way through before they were put on paper. Right. What I was going to get at is that, you know, this is really about the president trying to give Republicans some sort of cover because they didn't reach a deal with Democrats over the next stimulus. And we probably won't get one until September, maybe even the end of September when they have a spending bill that they have to come up with. And so it's a way that it seems Republicans sort of think, okay, we can, you know, take a little break here wait to see how the economy does, wait to see how the coronavirus does, and then well, we you know, know revisit that. these conversations. <laughs> and then revisit the conversations in September while they're out of tick. You know, Trump comes out every day and he talks about how well the stock market is doing. And he doesn't say anything about the people who are, you know, all over sort of the rest of the media who suddenly can't make ends meet can't pay their rent. The eviction moratorium for all of what he keeps saying that he'll, you know, he'll he'll put it back is not back on. So there is no moratorium at the moment on evictions. I mean, it, there's 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 millions of people who are in really dire straits. Um, and, you know, the Democrats in the White House and the Republicans um, are, you know, and, and I count the White House and the Republicans in Congress as two different negotiating entities right now, are basically just pointing their fingers at the other. I think you could count them as three or four, Julie. Yeah, that's probably true. You've got Meadows. And <laughs> I know. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. I've watched a lot of these negotiations. You know, I remember the ones where they went out to Andrews Air Force Base. And, you know, there have been lots of sort of high stakes high level negotiations. And, you know, sometimes they just end up punting it, which is what they did in 2011. You know, it's like, let's have a commission. This strikes me as way more of an emergency than most of these other previous high level negotiations. And it looks like they've just given up at this point. Maybe it has to reverberate through the stock market to your point, right? If the market keeps doing well, I mean, it's kind of going up and down a little bit. But if mass foreclosures cause stocks to drop, you know, and a variety of other things that happen that affect that stock market price. I don't know if that triggers more action or not, but I think Kimberly's right. We're not going to see they're gone <laughs> for the August break. We can still have, I think it was uh, both Senator McConnell and Speaker Pelosi said yesterday, there's absolutely nothing going on. This doesn't seem to be moving one inch, even though, as you point out, Julie, people are in desperate need of help. And mass evictions, if we get to that point, because some states do have some protections for renters, this economic crisis was caused by a pandemic. It was not caused by a bubble or, you know, internet stocks or the housing mess of 2008, 2009. This was the giant this pot was of money. The, as, right. This was the, this was the pandemic. But if you then go into a housing crisis, it creates 
not just the health issues of homelessness that we and our listeners are aware of, um, and education, everything else that goes with homelessness, it creates an economic domino effect that it just really bad. <laughs> and, and um, you know, then landlords aren't getting their money and people don't have a place to live. And it goes into a whole default, really bad downward spiral. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a health topic per se, but it's not a good thing in terms of our prospects for a reasonably rapid recovery, which is already a significant challenge. So I don't remember the number of states. I think it's less than half that do have some kind of renter protection, and some of them are expiring. Um, you may see more states step up, though they're not all in session either. Or maybe we'll have governors do none. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another big problem. Yeah. I think with the unemployment, uh, uh, some of them required state legislatures to act, and state legislatures are generally not in, um, with you know, with with a couple of with a handful of exceptions who who go late in the year. Most state legislatures only meet for a few months at the beginning of the year. All right. Well, next, uh, the president also said last week he's planning an executive order that would protect pre-existing conditions or protect people with pre-existing conditions, notwithstanding that pre-existing conditions are already protected by, let me check my notes. Oh, right. The Affordable Care Act. That's the same Affordable Care Act that the Trump administration is arguing in the Supreme Court should be struck down. Uh, aside from the whole head spinning idea of an executive order to do something that's already law, um, does Trump even have the authority, assuming the ACA is struck down, which one would assume is why he's doing this, uh, to do this without legislation? Isn't that why we have the ACA in the first place? Well, it's very unlikely that the ACA will be struck down before the election, right? The, right? There's only even one or two days on the calendar for the court to even hear it before the election unless they were to change it, which is not their usual custom. So that's going to push into post-election. I mean, I thought that Trump was unusually clear <laughs> at one of the briefings, I think it was two days ago, where he said, yeah, it's just messaging. <laughs> I mean, he actually yeah, he did. He said, yeah, it's <laughs> messaging. And someone said, doesn't you know, Obamacare already protect pre-existing conditions. And he said, yes. So, but we want to, we want to, we want to enforce that. We want to show that Republicans care about pre-existing conditions. So it, it was, um, it was an, it was sort of a very honest 30 seconds. You know, we're doing this to say we're for something, even though it already exists because the Democrats did it. And we're really right. not for it because we're trying to get rid of it. So yes, he, he, that was that was a remarkable briefing in which he said a lot of quiet things out loud, um, including this one. But I think what he should have said is that if the ACA is eventually struck down, we want to make sure that we don't want Republicans to get blamed for the loss of these protections that people find really important. That's kind of what he could have and should have said. And I assume the intensity behind this. But I think he also wants to, you know, sort of back to my question about the previous executive order. Does he actually believe this or does he just think that he can convince the public to believe this? I mean, he just keeps saying the Republicans are for protecting pre-existing conditions without all the other things. It's like if the ACA went away and even if he did have the authority, which I don't think he does, to say this, that's not what's making the individual market stand up now. It's the subsidies and the limits on the elimination of annual and lifetime limits. Um, You know, there's a whole lot of other things that go with that pre-existing and not charging people more who have pre-existing conditions. Those those are all a piece of what's protecting people with pre-existing conditions. And of course, because he hasn't done it yet, we don't know what would be in it. But that by itself is not enough to actually give people the same protections they now have with the Affordable Care Act. Um, yeah, and this appears to be sort of election messaging. Like he said in 2016, you know, if you, you, if you elect me, we will eliminate the ACA and pass something wonderful. Which on day is, one. 
in right, special on day session. One. <laughs> he was going to call a special session when Congress was already in to eliminate the ACA on day one, or maybe it was day two. And the other thing, Julie, you may have heard it, or Kimberly or Mary Agnes may have heard it. I did not listen to the Saturday press conference itself from Bedminster. I did. So uh, someone told me he later said when he was talking about preexistence, he said, nobody ever thought of this before. Is that true? Because I didn't hear it. No, what he said was nobody's ever done this before. Okay. He said he was going to do preexistence. Nobody's ever done it before. And that was the part that kind of made reporters' heads explode because they're like, of course, people have done it. It's already law. So what he said on Monday is that nobody's ever done it by executive order. It's pretty, including yeah, him. Including him. That's right. Including him. But yes, he said nobody has ever done that before. And everybody went, huh? Anyway. Okay. All right. Well, one more executive order. Um, and this one has appa- apparently has been signed by the president, but they haven't released it yet. So I don't think anybody's actually seen all of it. Uh, and this requires the federal government to buy basically only prescription drugs manufactured in America, of which there aren't very many, as we know and discuss fairly frequently. There are apparently a lot of exceptions in this executive order, not all of which we have seen. But the drug industry is, shall we say, not very happy. I am guessing this is Trump's way to say, see, I made the drug industry mad, so I must be doing something right on drug prices. Uh, Am I reading this correctly? Well, yes. And so many of the other measures where he's tried to lower drug prices haven't gotten, haven't worked, haven't gotten traction. But I mean, there's like you said, there's all these different opt outs if the drugs are too expensive, if they can't be manufactured here. And we have to remember that a lot of our prescription drug manufacturing is overseas because it's cheaper. So this could actually, if it went through, could have the impact of raising drug prices, which is exactly what the president does not want to do. There's bipartisan interest in this kind of policy. There is, and it predated the pandemic, actually. Um, I mean, there was a concern that we were too reliant on China, India, and other countries for drugs, both for the finished drugs and um, for the, the ingredients that one that we need to make the drugs. So, so there is bipartisan support for the concept. Um, that bipartisan support is intensified because of what we've seen over the last few months. But nobody thinks this is the way to fix it with Kodak. (laughs) Kodak is next. (laughs) We're getting to that in a second. But yeah, I mean, this one basically just says you have to. Well, I was trying to say nobody. Not many. I mean, Trump apparently does. But um, this is is not what the uh, bipartisan group in Congress would would have approached it with more executive orders. And there's legislation pending on this. If it went to the floor, I don't know if there's poison pills in it. Um, You could probably do something legislatively at some point if everybody decided to make nice on on this kind of... And and you're right. There is, I mean, there had been, I mean, we've had Anna Edney on this podcast a number of times who's done some sort of amazing work looking at safety issues of both drugs and drug ingredients that are made in, you know, it's one thing when, you know, a company locates its manufacturing facility in Puerto Rico or Ireland, and there's a lot of that. But now we're getting so many drug products and drug ingredients ingredients from, as you say, China and India, and the regulation is not always as tight as as one would think and or hope. So this has obviously been a concern for a while, and that was before the supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic. But I think the drug industry feels like this would be a pretty blunt instrument to just say, okay, you have to do it. All right, well, now let's talk about Kodak, because one of the ways the administration wants to encourage that return of drug manufacturing to the U.S. is with a new program, uh, and its first uh, basic project was a $765 million 
million loan to Kodak to help it shift from making photography equipment to making generic drug ingredients. Except now the whole thing is a huge mess of investigations with Kodak board members and executives making suspicious stock trades and an accidental early release of the deal to a local paper in Rochester, New York, where Kodak headquarters is. Could this thing have possibly rolled out any worse? I mean, one can presume this is not the world's dumbest idea to help manufacturers whose previous line of business might not be very lucrative anymore get into drug making, but they it appears that they couldn't do sort of basic contracting 101. Exactly. The point out you raise about trying to retool Kodak, right, which is known as for photography, into pharmaceutical manufacturing, and they felt they had some production chains that could easily transcend to that. That in and of itself makes sense, but all the things that you just raised, you know, the examination of how much their lobbying money jumped up, right? That's another facet of this. And company executives say, you know, we wanted to take a look at the COVID distribution money that was being, you know, distributed in Washington. We wanted to take a look at that. We want to help America in any way we can. It has just grown into this whole thing you're talking about, Julie, the examination of the stock trades and what happened there and all of a sudden a freeze on the loan. I mean, I was watching some videos last night of the the Kodak CEO talking about the deal and he's like, yeah, it's locked in. It's definitely going to go through. And now we've had it completely hit the brakes. I mean, I just think there'll be a fascinating backstory that will come out about the lobbying, about the stock trades, about the decision to award it to them, why so much money to Kodak, which isn't currently in the drug pharmaceutical production space right now? It's just there's a lot of unanswered questions, but it's been fascinating to watch this thing. And it really adds to, you know, the long list of sort of problems and disruptive way that we've as as a as a country that our federal government has responded to this pandemic. It seems like at every turn there's some new major problem um, in getting a handle on this crisis. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are obviously there have been procurement rules in the federal government since, well, since the beginning of the federal government, particularly after the Civil War. And we've seen so many examples of sort of basic contracting 101 with private companies just completely violated and then blowing up in the face of both the government and the company. There should be people who know, I mean, there are people who know how to do this, but they should allow the people who know how to do it to do it. You know, part of the problem, obviously, is it's an emergency, but that doesn't mean that you don't end up with this kind of mess that doesn't really do anybody any good. All right. Well, finally this week, um, this is something I've been trying to get to for the last couple of weeks, uh, and it's that we're running out of health workers. Our KHN project with the Guardian lost on the front line now has a database with more than 900 deaths from COVID of frontline health workers. Um, you can talk about making new ventilators and standing up extra hospitals all you want, but if you don't have the health professionals to staff them, that's a big, big problem. And I feel like this is something that's not really being talked about. This is dragged on in a way it hasn't in a lot of countries. And, you know, workers who are, who you know, all sort of up and went to New York to help out in March and April are now home facing their own crises at home. And we're burning out our health professional workforce. Is there anything that we can do? We just have to slow the spread of COVID. I mean, you know, look at the debate we're having all over this country about whether or not people have to wear masks and legal action that some lawmakers are taking to try to prevent any kind of requirement I mean, when you continuously stress the healthcare system, this is going to happen. It's going to happen to 
you know, shortages. Now we're talking nurses, respiratory therapists, all sorts of medical personnel. We cannot keep straining the system in this way. I mean, we had shortages of some kinds of providers already. And those shortages tended to be the providers we need right now. We don't have a shortage of orthopedic surgeons, but you know that's not what we need right now. It's not that some of them aren't participating in taking care of patients or doing their bit um, or coming up with creative ways of addressing some needs at this time. I, I don't want to single them out and say they're bad, but that's not our problem right now. Our problem is taking care of really sick people in the hospital and then the unknown number that will have chronic conditions after. We still don't understand um, why some people have chronic, what's the word, sequelae, um, I probably said that wrong, but, you know, after effects that are damaging, continuing to have symptoms, neurological, respiratory, cardiac, um, just fuzziness, exhaustion. There's a bunch of things. We don't yet understand why some people have it, nor do we know if it's permanent or six more months or two more years or three more days or the rest of your life. These are really frightening questions for the people suffering from, from this and for the healthcare system because it's not it does not seem to be only an acute illness. It also seems to be for some subsection or subpopulation a chronic illness. And it's very mysterious. I mean, it's really not clearly understood. We're going to have to figure out how to take care of them too. And again, our, our healthcare system is not a chronic disease system. It's an acute crisis system. And because it was really built around what Medicare looked like in 1965, because we had different health care needs and demographic patterns and uh, conditions, we've cured some of that stuff or we've managed it better. You don't, you don't, fewer people drop dead of major heart attacks in their 60s. Instead, they have congestive heart failure in their 80s. And we never fixed that. I mean, we've, we've made some progress, but we, we, that's not what we do well. And this is a whole nother dimension of what we don't do well and personnel and payments and expertise and management. And it's a variant of primary care. And and I would just add to that that, you know, we're in these sort of scary stories about people who, who've been sick since March. And there are a lot of them. They're not all people in their 50s and 60s and 70s. No, I know. A, I personally know a young one. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of people, you know, previously healthy joggers in their 30s who suddenly have, you know, who, who got COVID and maybe didn't even get such a severe case, but are still sick five, six months later. Um, it's, it's a... I mean, I know a young couple. He got over it in five days. And the wife, his wife has been sick since March. And young, healthy jogger, what Julie just described. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Um, so I picked a story that's probably happening nationally, but um, often I find these stories first reported in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, this piece is by Sarah Gans, who I feel like I bring up a lot during this podcast. She's very good. So yeah, I should probably take her to coffee sometime once all this is over. But um, the title of the piece is called, um, and it has to do um, with, with childbirth in America, and it's Coronavirus is Changing Childbirth in the Philadelphia Region, Including Boosting Scheduled Inductions. And so it's yet another look at the way that uh, we're delivering healthcare is changing in the middle of this pandemic. I actually have friends who've been pregnant during this, and it's been really terrifying. It's funny, we now see all these people who are 100, or I guess they're 102, who were born during the 1918 flu. Um, so I guess I guess the kids who are coming out will at least have something in, in future years to uh, to be able to tell their children and grandchildren. 
Joanne, why don't you go next? Uh, this is a piece by um, from a combination of the Texas Trib and uh, ProPublica by Dara Lind and I think it's pronounced Lomi Creel, and it's about how the U.S. government is expelling the unaccompanied minors, sending them back to home countries without any legal protections or, or process. And they're doing it in order to prevent the spread of COVID, but they're testing them and they're negative. So they're sending back people who do not have the virus to prevent people who do not have it from spreading it. So there's really a longer story there. Okay, Mac. Mine is Inside the Fight to Save Houston's Most Vulnerable. This is a New York Times fabulous um, interactive display of text and photos and graphics looking at, I should say the writers before I forget, Sherry Fink, Emily Ryan, and Aaron Chaff. What they did is they got access to go into a, an ICU unit at a Houston hospital where in this 24-bed unit, more than 60% of folks in this unit identify as Hispanic. And it's looking at, you know, the, how the pandemic has disproportionately affected Latinos. So we know that. But the, the thing about this that really caught my eye is they have incredible vivid video. For example, a nurse bringing a family rosary into a very sick patient as his brother and mother, you know, remain outside the unit and are praying for his recovery. Uh, There is a story about a couple that both got COVID. The husband went home earlier than the wife, him talking about, you know, very concerned about her recovery. There's a very feisty grandmother who had great health, went to a birthday party for a granddaughter. Several uh, people at that party came down with COVID. You know, we've been talking so much about COVID. We're all writing about it and covering it. But watching these videos in particular just got to me. It just really brought home the severity of this and how intense this is for just millions of Americans and their families. So I thought it was extremely powerful. Yeah, I I did too. Well, mine is from the Wall Street Journal. It's called COVID-19 Reporting System Gets Off to a Rocky Start by Robbie Whalen. Uh, It's an update to a story we talked about here last month when the Department of Health and Human Services, with only a few days notice, ordered hospitals to stop reporting COVID data to the CDC and to send it to an HHS contractor instead. The purpose of the administration was to get the data out faster that CDC wasn't able to update it often enough, except, and who could have possibly seen this coming? Now it seems the data is getting out even slower. It's updated only intermittently, and this is really important data that businesses and public health professionals and academics rely on to gauge what's happening with the healthcare system, so it is definitely not a great situation. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Mac? At Mary Agnes Carey. Kim? At Leonard K.L. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.